Well, a few weeks ago, I went to the Natural History Museum of Utah, the Rio Tinto Center, for the first time ever. I have a family membership there. My family's been there many times. I had never been there. Shame, shame, shame on me. It's the brand new museum up, you know, it's up by the mountain, up by Red Butte Garden. Beautiful building. I've seen it from the outside many times, but I'd never been in. They were having a behind-the-scenes event up there where they take you, uh, well, behind the scenes of the Natural History Museum and show you a lot of the collections and things that you never get to see. Man, what an incredible place the Natural History Museum of Utah is. Uh, Now, I sat down after our behind-the-scenes tour uh, with Paul Michael Maxfield. He's the gallery program's coordinator kind of the guy who's responsible for uh, making sure that all of the uh, programs that they do at the uh, museum are coordinated. (laughs) That's his title, isn't it? Uh, He's a a really nice guy. We sat down in the cafe there at the Natural History Museum and chatted about the the behind-the-scenes exhibit. We were also uh, joined by Dr. Randall Ermus, who's the curator of paleontology. He's the guy who knows all about dinosaurs and dinosaur bones. He's a surprisingly a really young guy. You expect paleontologists to be kind of grizzled old prospector kind of people. He's a very young guy, and he's very um, he's very well respected in the field of paleontology. We talked to uh, Dr. Uh, Ermus, Randy, as I now call him, about paleontology and about what's new in the field of dinosaurs. And uh, we also talked a little bit about the cafe at the Natural History Museum. Uh, We talked with Paul Mulder about that. It's all on this episode of the Let's Go Eat Show. Uh, I want to thank Corey O'Brien for putting the show together. I want to thank my son Dylan in New York for uh, helping with the show as well and giving me notes on the show. And I want to thank all of you for listening. This will be the last uh, new show Uh, for the holidays, and then uh, in January, we'll start producing new episodes of the Let's Go Eat show. That's it. Here we go. Back here in the uh, Museum Cafe. Uh, We're at the uh, Utah Museum of Natural History at Rio Tinto Center. Is that that how you say it? Yeah, it's actually the Natural History Museum of Utah at Rio Tinto Center at the University of Utah. (laughs) Okay, got it. Uh, And uh, that voice you heard is uh, Paul Michael Maxfield. He is the gallery program coordinator here at the museum, and we're uh, uh, pleased uh, to have with us also Randall Ermus, Randy Ermus. He's uh, uh, the curator of paleontology here, and also a professor of paleontology, an associate professor. Assistant. Assistant Assistant professor professor of paleontology at the University of Utah. Now, I've just been, I have to confess, this is like the first time I've ever been to the museum uh, here in the new location, Uh, and... and, um, and I had not seen the collection here. Mm-hmm. I saw it at the old place, and it's just no comparison. Right. Yeah, it, well, totally state-of-the-art facilities now. Oh, my yeah. God. And um, so uh, I was fortunate enough to have Paul Michael take us through uh, the all, a lot of the paleontology there because cool. that's my family was with us at the, at the moment, and they really wanted – they loved the dinosaur. Who awesome. doesn't love the dinosaur? Yeah, who doesn't? That, that's the great thing about what I do is – Everybody loves dinosaurs, you know. It's the, it's, it's the way to get people in interest in science. Um, and uh, it, it's just absolutely stunning how well these um, it's presented here. How much did you have to do with the presentation of the, the way that things are presented here at the museum? Well, the, many, many people were involved in, in designing the exhibits, and so it's not only our um, 
the researchers here, including myself and my predecessor, Dr. Scott, Scott Sampson, but also the exhibits team and all those ideas, you know, go into the cauldron and, and resulted in these phenomenal exhibits. And then do you, and then do you just have like artists and, and mm-hmm. kind of designers as well? Yeah, there's a whole team of different designers, both in-house and also uh, from other companies, as well as artists that, that were involved in doing all the work. Mm-hmm. And, and so literally hundreds of people were involved in in putting together these exhibits. If you haven't been to the uh, Natural History Museum here, uh, you, you must come. Now, we, we were here at the behind-the-scenes event, which only happens once a year, two days, and you, you've missed it by the time you hear this. You've missed it, but they'll, it'll happen again. Yeah, we'll do it next year. Next year. Uh, you get to see um, things in the collection that are not normally seen by the general public. And uh, even at that, um, you don't. You certainly don't see everything that yeah. is available here. Um, but what can you can you give some uh, people some idea? Uh, can I just call you Randy? Yeah, uh, is that what people call you, yep, Randy? That's what they okay. call me, <laughs> uh, Ra- Doctor Randy. Uh, give people some idea of what's behind the scenes in the paleontology department that people never see. Definitely. Well, we have over thirty thousand specimens in the paleontology collections alone, and so less than one percent of those we can actually put on display at any one time. And so one of the reasons we do behind the scenes is so people can see all the other stuff we have in our cabinets and on shelves that uh, we also are taking care of. And so that's everything from really strange fossil mammals that have weird horns on them to early horses to horned dinosaurs with all sorts of spikes coming off their face and everything in between. And we try and pull out the highlights and different ones each year for, for people who come to behind the scenes. What's, why is it important to have all of these things? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're there, and and they're just stored in cabinets. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Well, all these specimens document the history of life on Earth. And without them in our museum, we wouldn't know anything about that. And so our job as museum scientists is to take care of those specimens, not only for current but also future generations, whether they're used for exhibit or education or scientific research. Uh, they fulfill a lot of different roles. And so we're sort of this archive of past biodiversity uh, that is that is nowhere else but in museums. What is it? it you know, you study, um, you study life on Earth. Mm-hmm. That that occurred millions of years ago. That's right. Yeah. Does it? And you live in this past. <laughs> you live mil- in this past millions of years ago, which we'd uh, like to anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which which according to the Bible could not have happened. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, uh, so what ca- what can that tell us about life now? Mm-hmm. Well, the great thing about the paleontological record and geologic record is it's this grand natural experiment that's already been run. And we, as paleontologists, just have to go back and gather the the evidence in the rocks. And so if you want to know how is climate change going to affect animals and plants over a long time scale or, or humans even, the only way you can really address that is by looking at fossils and the geologic record where there's been past events of climate change. And that's just one example of where what we do is really relevant to, to right now. So, so what you can tell us for sure is that climate change, however it occurs, mm-hmm. does 
change life on Earth and can change it drastically. That's right. So I spend a lot of my time uh, looking at the very beginning of the age of dinosaurs, and there were actually two big mass extinction events that were both caused by lots of greenhouse gases being put into the atmosphere suddenly. And what we see is that it took... It may have only took a few thousand years for those greenhouse gases to be put in the atmosphere, but it took two to four million years for the ecosystems to recover. So that tells us that, you know, if you have sudden climate change, the effects are not just now or few hundred years in the future. They may be hundreds of thousands to millions of years in the future. So we really need to be think about uh, potentially what's going to happen. So, so you get, and, and I've heard this said, this is not uh, an original thought, certainly, but it does make me think of this. The earth really is indifferent, in a way. <laughs> it is indifferent yeah, yeah. to... Over to, long scales, yeah. It is indifferent to what we as human beings are right. doing right now. That's right. Uh, and if we are, and it's, the evidence seems pretty strong that we are hastening climate mm-hmm. change, uh, but the earth does not, doesn't care about that. Right. Um, and if we do cause climate change uh, and and it alters life radically, that change could be um, of a duration of millions of years. Potentially, yeah. 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 And um, that's not to say that the Earth is going to stop being. That's correct, yeah. It will just change and maybe change drastically. Yeah. And, and make it impossible for... I mean, we have seen species go extinct, extinct, and we are a species. That's correct. And so I think, you know, all people always say, why should we care about whether it's uh, habitat loss or biodiversity loss or climate change? And it's, it's really, if no other reason you should care about, because it affects us as a society and as a species. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to affect us adversely in some cases. And so the more we work to preserve those things or at least mitigate them, um, the better off we are going to be as a species. And we're smarter than the dinosaurs. Yeah, that's right. I, I think. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hope so. <laughs> uh, they didn't have any, you know, they, they didn't. Well, the, yeah. They were. Isn't it, it, does it ever, str- it, it, I mean, sometimes it just strikes me as so odd that there were these creatures wandering about the earth, these behemoths. Wandering yeah. about the earth, um, and then, then, and now they're gone. Yeah, some of them are just so strange you almost couldn't imagine yeah. that they exist without knowing from fossils that they did exist. And I think it speaks a lot to sort of, you know, just how many different things can happen evolutionarily through time. And um, and it is hard to imagine some of these creatures alive. And, and mm-hmm. that's one of the, I think, really fun parts about paleontology and about being a paleontologist is you get to to investigate these weird and wonderful creatures and try and figure out how did they live what were they doing and you know uh, what sort of environment did they live in things like that do we um you know uh of course uh, now we've uh, determined or i should say you have determined <laughs> not me i don't have anything paleontologists <laughs> my, have my colleagues <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well uh although paul michael tells me that uh, you are preeminent uh, uh, one of the preeminent paleontologists well, he's being very kind. Well, why don't you want to toot his horn a little bit? Well, I, I mean, I, I can only say that uh, Randy is very well uh, known in his field, 
and uh, does very interesting work. And I, I am particularly ad, um, uh, admire Randy for um, his dedication to science communication. Mm. You know, he's always willing to, to talk to people about the science and his incredible passion. Well, my, fe- my feeling is what's the point of doing the science if you can't share it with people? So. Yeah. Uh, uh, although there are scientists uh, uh, who are not particularly good communicators. That's very true. And, and, I mean, yeah. and that's, and, uh, you know, not... They're they're just people who are good at certain things yes, and not yeah, you know. Yeah. Not. But increasingly, communication is a big part of being a scientist, because you know so much of what we do is funded by the public through yeah. you know whether it's through uh, the state or federal resources, and so you, you have to be good at you know explain why what you do is important mm-hmm. to support and and share those cool discoveries. I mean, because after all, that's the fun part, sharing these really cool discoveries with everybody out there. Wow, look at this, man. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's awesome. We get excited, and I want other people to get excited, too. I so, think it's it's particularly important, too, to kind of share those discoveries and that passion with yeah, the younger generation. Totally. You know, there's a, a, kind of a lot of misconceptions out there as to what a scientist <laughs> yeah. can be. And, you know, and I, I talk to kids all the time at the museum that don't think they can do science. But when they have an opportunity, like behind the scenes or just coming to the museum, and they get to meet a scientist, they they see that you know young people can be scientists, that yeah. women can be scientists, mm-hmm. that people of color can be scientists. I mean, and and um, it's my hope that they leave here feeling empowered. Yes, that's mm-hmm. a huge, hugely important thing because there are these great studies where they ask school kids to draw what a scientist looked like and invariably it's this old white guy with a beard yeah. and a lab coat cackling and, over yeah, a yeah, flask yeah, no. and, and then they get to meet a real scientist who's totally different and like that i think really opens the door to seeing oh science or technology or whatever it is that's something i can do when i grow up well as i as i said before i i met you yeah. you know they said would you like to talk to randy he's the uh curator of paleontology here at the museum and i i thought well this kind of paunchy older guy with a big beard is going to come and sit down and as it turns out it's a young guy how old are you? you're like barely 30 are you? Uh, early 30s yeah, yeah and a young guy with with, uh, with a kind of just a very scruffy beard and, you know, uh, i mean there's still time to get paunchy yeah and that's, right, that's right that's <laughs> right but quite young uh, but but we're finding exciting things now and i just I, again i was uh, uh something i was reading the other day it is really now confirmed that Many dinosaurs had feathers. That's correct, yeah. Feathers. Feathers, yep. yeah. Just like birds do today. And it was, uh, I guess that it was theorized for a long time, mm-hmm. but now there's fo- really good fossil evidence. That's correct, yeah. We've been, there's been some amazing discoveries, particularly in places like China, where soft tissue is pre- preserved, and we get these wonderful feathers. And now we can even tell what color some of those feathers were. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that color, color of feathers but mm-hmm. how, color of skin on dinosaurs have, that's always been kind of speculative that's have right we, uh, have we been able to do more with that so with regular skin it's still speculative and it's really just the artists you know at, at liberty of the artists based on what we see among modern animals but with mm-hmm. feathers um even though the fossil feathers we find don't have any color in and of themselves they have these little microscopic structures that relate to the feather color. And if we can look at those structures under an electron microscope, then we can reconstruct what color that feather were, originally were was. Were these feathered dinosaurs? Now, Paul Michael was telling mm-hmm. me this earlier, so it's not I, I, it's new knowledge to me. These The, the feathered dinosaurs were the meat eaters. Yes, that's correct. Uh, the, mo, it was pretty much the 
the plant-eating dinosaurs, we, you still say were scaled or had skin. There's some that had a fuzzy covering, but not none had really true feathers like the meat eaters did. So, so Steven Spielberg will have to go back to Jurassic Park and, <laughs> and well, <laughs> put feathers on the the velociraptors. One would think, but I, apparently Jurassic Park Four is in production right now, and the director said he was going to keep the velociraptors scaly. Purely because that's the you know he wanted continuity with the franchise. So well, I think they I think they should just go back to the original movie and not redo it, but just you know Update, digitally yeah. digitally do yeah, it. Well, well, yeah, well, sure. if Lucas did it for Star Wars, then why not for Jurassic Park? Right? <laughs> of, course he, of, course he, of course, he ruined Star Wars. By doing it. But anyway, we won't go into that. Uh, uh, but uh, but at any rate, so so were they uh, color? Let's go back to color. Were they? Was the the plumage? Were the feathers? colorful were they they were just like modern birds so i mean you've got birds of all colors and mm-hmm. we we are finding dinosaurs of all colors you know some had iridescent black feathers others had rufous red crests and orange and white and all sorts of different colors so. well, I, I know where i was hearing about this recently i i know the people uh, uh at broadway across america uh-huh. and they're bringing in this walking with dinosaurs yes. show that's right which i saw at the um uh, Delta Center mm-hmm. uh, or Energy, Energy Solutions, Solutions. Yeah. Uh, a few years I, ago, yeah. years ago. and right. it was kind of cool. I yeah. mean, uh, they have a, a guy, a uh, uh, one human figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably saw it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, one human figure, and then they have these gigantic walking models of dinosaurs, which right. I guess are pretty accurate. They are. They do a really good job. But there. now they're they've redone the oh, show, wow. and they they are feathered. Excellent. They have a Excellent. bunch of feathered, and he said. Uh, they they were telling me that they're very colorful and fe- they've got a lot of feathered dinosaurs yep. in the show now. Yep, so. and s- that color now we we actually have a basis for it, which That's is pretty amazing. Astonishing. Um, paleontology. Well, I want to ask you this: How? And then I, and I know you've got to get back to behind the scenes. You've got <laughs> you've got kids up there wanting to talk to to the dinosaur guy. Uh, how did you get into it? Is it the typical story of a kid who was just you liked the the power of the dinosaurs, and yeah, you know. it, it really is a that typical story. I loved dinosaurs and and fossils and rocks and minerals as a little kid, and I just never grew up. And now I get to do it for my job. Do you um do you get to go, do you go on digs and that kind of thing? We do. That's you know that's still my favorite part of being a paleontologist is going out in the field and going on digs. And we are lucky enough that we do a lot of it. Um, our team spends collectively about three months of the year out on digs in various places and it's so much fun and a place like utah is one of the best places on earth to do paleontology yeah where where in utah are the best dig sites oh they're all over we're we've been working as a museum for a number of years in grand staircase escalante national monument which is in the southern part of the state and finding all sorts of new dinosaurs there but we've also worked uh, in the northeastern part of the state also new mexico and i've done field work in argentina as well so mm-hmm. you know it's, yeah. Um, it's a rewarding field, and I guess, and I guess you would just say you would encourage any kid who wanted to get into it to do Definitely. it. Definitely. I mean, whatever you're into, whether it's science or technology or art or whatnot, you should pursue that passion because there's nothing better than having your job be the be your passion. Very few people yeah. have that opportunity, and if you can take advantage of it, then go for it. Yeah, you're yeah, you're right. We t- I talk about that a lot with people. I'm lucky. 
because I love what I do. Yeah. You're lucky. Because there's so many people who have jobs that they just, they're, it's just their job. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. if you can identify your passion and then work at it, then you're good. Nice totally. to meet you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to, great to meet you, and I, yeah. we'll, I'll look you up again when we come up to the museum. All right, sounds great. All right, it's, uh, it's Randall Ermus. That's right. Uh, PhD, professor of, pa- assistant professor of paleontology. <laughs> That's right. And curator of paleontology here at the Utah Museum of Natural History. Thanks. Thanks. We're going to talk to uh, a little bit more to, um, uh, we're going to talk to the uh, cafe manager here in a second, but uh, Paul Michael Maxfield, uh, who's the gallery program coordinator here. Um, tell me about that. How did well, you, what is that job? I, I pretty much have the coolest job in the world. I work very closely with scientists and learn about their research and then find interesting ways to communicate their science to the general public. Um, and we do all kinds of things. We have a museum theater program. We do hands-on activities. We do lectures, special events. Uh, it really is a, just an amazing job. Do you have to learn about the cafe at all? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> I get to learn about the cafe. We we have some delicious food. Uh, Paul there. Mulder is the uh, cafe manager here at the museum. Uh, and uh, so people can come up here and just eat lunch. They don't have to. They don't have to go to the museum, right? Absolutely. You know, it's extraordinary. The view that we have from up here is probably second to none, one of the best uh, views of the valley. I have uh, people coming in from, well, we did get some wonderful visitors from all across the country and Chicago and whatnot, and they come up here, and I have people bring their friends up when they're just visiting mm-hmm. uh, just for the view and for, of course, the amazing accoutrement that we have in the cafe. Well, now I'm just having a cup of coffee here. It's delicious, great coffee. What do you what do you um, what do you specialize in here at the cafe? That's a really good question. Um, we are trying to utilize the lo- local vendors as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So our coffee is from um, Salt Lake Roasting Company. Mm-hmm. John's been around in Salt Lake for over 20 years yep. and so we're using, you know, the best coffee that he can source to us. Uh, organic Sumatra and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a, a phenomenal espresso machine. So we're making all the lattes and all the frilly drinks and mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. like that. The pumpkin mm-hmm. spice this and the oh, vanilla pumpkin. that. You have to have pumpkin <laughs> spice, I guess. you got to have got to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, to that end, uh, anything from savory to sweet, uh, I love to make uh, seasonal items such as a pumpkin cheesecake or... Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some delicious scones. Uh, we have uh, vegan and uh, gluten-free options. So you do this stuff right right here in-house? Um, majority of it I do in-house. Yeah. Uh, of course, I don't have big enough kitchen space to do all the gluten-free things, so I outsource that just because yeah. I don't want to cross-contaminate things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, it's wonderful being at the trailhead here for, is this the, uh, I don't even know the name. Is that the pipeline or what is Shoreline it? Trail? Shoreline, Shoreline Trail. Shoreline Trail, so yeah. Mm-hmm. We get hundreds of people every day just parking their cars right here by the museum and yeah. taking this hike. And oftentimes they'll stop and grab a little granola bar or something for their hike on their way up. Uh, we have fresh fruit, a uh, little grab-and-go things, salads, uh, wide array, uh, anything from uh, smoked salmon quiche to mm. breakfast burritos. Um, and then some great staples of a caprice, a caprice, um, Cuban panini. We have a panini. You press. do a Cuban? Yeah. Oh, I love a Cuban yeah. sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you my favorite thing that Paul does? Um, today he made uh, butternut squash cheese enchiladas, and let me tell you, those were mm. delicious. Mm. So good. Mm. Yeah. yeah. What, so what time do you open? Uh, we open at nine. Oh, so um, so kind of breakfast, little breakfasty yeah, items to yeah. begin with. Nine to four on a, on a seven days a week. 
Uh, yeah. Seven days a week? Seven days a week. When do you take a break? I, I keep asking my boss that. <laughs> <laughs> when do I get to take a break, man? Uh, that's uh, that's terrific. So, uh, and uh, people come, you can just come up anytime without going to the museum. Absolutely. And it's a, it's a great little place to stop. It's mm-hmm. a little uh, more niche than, say, you know, some of the other little competitor places. Mm-hmm. And, um, we do have a lot of school kids coming through on the weekdays, but Saturday, Sunday are phenomenal. And then the afternoons after 2 o'clock, it's uh, very peaceful. We have an Internet connection up here. Oh, uh, the good. view of the valley when we're not having our inversions, like for today, example, it's a gorgeous Beautiful, day out there. Yeah. It's sun. And uh, what's curious is this morning when I drove up at 6 to make my enchiladas, Yes, there was a, I'm not sure if it's a coyote or a wolf. Probably coyote. Probably a coyote. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, just standing huge, in the road. Huge, Oh, it was huge? Mm-hmm. We, we, well. we parked over here uh, just next door to give room for the clients here in our parking lot. And so we walk a dirt trail to work every morning. It's rather unique. I feel very, very <laughs> yeah. rural and rustic. rustic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there was a coyote? Uh-huh. Or, so, or, yeah. or maybe, you sure it wasn't just a big dog? Paul? No, it <laughs> no. was a coyote. We have, a, we have a lot of coyotes up here in the foothills. Yeah. yeah they, they yelp every night, and they're trotting around looking for food. Do people really, you know, we're talking about the Natural History Museum, and uh, I just kind of assume everybody knows where it is and where to come, but maybe they don't, you know. Just because I live just down the hill, and you know, it's uh, tell people where it is. So we're uh, still on the University of Utah campus, and uh, we're up in the foothills in Research Park, and we're just south of Red Butte Gardens. Yeah, so just you just you come up the hill toward Red Butte Garden and up through Research Park, and just uh, is it still is it Wakara Way? Is you yeah Wakara Way Wakara Way, and you just come up and just go as far up as you can go. Yep, and uh, you're there. And if you haven't come to the Museum of Natural History, you're really missing out. And, and the cafe, great. Architecturally, this is one of the uh, most stunning buildings. Yeah. The way that they've developed this. Uh, and they've, they've uh, I, I don't know all the facts about it, but it feels like they've uh, made it uh, fit into the environment of Utah yeah. with canyons and with trails. And, and you descend into the rock formations and then you come back up again and they've... The, the, the way that they've displayed, uh, I'm in awe. And I lived in Manhattan for 15 years. I was actually working in the Natural History Museum in, uh, in New York. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, they've got that 35-foot canoe in the, when, when you walk in there. And they've got some anomaly-type things that are just gorgeous. And they're dinosaur displays. But I think this rivals them easily. I think we're easily on par with the Certainly a world-class. Absolutely. This is a world-class uh, building. Yeah, uh, I'm sure it's you know it's I'm sure it's featured in architectural uh, magazines and stuff. What, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We're, I mean, we've been we have a, a ton of awards, and I mean, we're really, really lucky and, and very grateful that the um, the uh, uh, people of Utah have you know have uh, enjoyed their experiences up here so far and have said really, really nice things. Really, haven't? How, how long have we been open here? About three years, actually. It's almost three years to the day. Yeah, anniversaries, right? Right, yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you have permanent collection stuff here. Uh, the dinosaur um, skeletons uh, are, are pretty much, they're, they're, they're always going to be there with 
uh, with not a lot of change, I would think. Mm-hmm. But then there are rotating exhibits and things as well, right? Right. Yeah. We. I mean, we we have a, a permanent exhibit and um, and a collection of permanent exhibits, and we'll pull things on and off uh, occasionally. Uh, but we have a uh, seven thousand square foot space dedicated for traveling exhibits. Right now, we have an amazing exhibit uh, called "The Horse" from the American Museum of Natural History. Um, and then starting in, was it like mid-February, we're going to be opening up uh, another exhibit uh, called Extreme Mammals. Extreme um, Mammals? Yeah, that's right. And it tells the story of the biggest and the smallest and, and really the most extreme mammals that this world has to offer. Now, when you come up to the uh, museum, do you pay extra to go into those exhibits? No, nope. no, it's you just, just, just your admission price. Yeah, included in the price of admission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that'll replace the horse exhibit? That's correct. Yeah, so yeah. they just come in and uh, they're traveling exhibits that go around the country. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. And, you know, sometimes we uh, rent them from big institutions like the Field Museum and American Museum of Natural History. And every once in a while we have, you know, really unique opportunity to build exhibits uh, here in the museum. And then we travel those around around the world. And the last exhibit we built is uh, Weaving a Revolution. And it's just this beautiful story about the um, Navajo baskets and this uh, tradition that was preserved, um, uh, you know, for generations. I mean, and a real big shift in in the way that the baskets are, are made and, and the way that the Navajo culture is being represented. I saw uh, uh, behind the scenes, and I don't. I think it's something that's probably not in the permanent collection. Uh, there, there are a lot of rugs, uh, Navajo, or uh, I guess probably Navajo rugs up there. Yeah, and there's a rug uh, of a village. That uh, s- somebody has woven. It's of a, of a native village, and there. So there's the rug, and there are all these people sitting there, and and there's a, you know a couple of little hoguns and people sitting, and then and then you look up in the sky, and there's a helicopter uh. woven in. Woven into the rug. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a little helicopter in the sky and then some geese and things. Yeah. <laughs> and I wouldn't have probably noticed, but the but the woman who was uh, uh, standing at the beginning of the exhibit, she said, now make sure when you look at the last rug down there yeah. of the village, look up in the sky. There's a helicopter ro- woven into the rug. You know, part of I, the daily life. Yeah. yeah I, I think people have a tendency to uh, kind of almost uh, like over-ritualize American Indian art. You know, and I get questions in the galleries all the time, like, you know, why, what is the symbolism of this rose and why did they choose the color blue? And although American Indians, you know, they have a very deep tradition of, of, of symbolism, you know, a lot of times the answer is, well, they, they like roses. Yeah. You know, the weaver liked a rose. Or they, Who doesn't? Yeah. The weaver thought blue looked really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, some, something I want to talk about uh, uh, about the museum that um, you get from behind the scenes and you know, you might have some experience with this too, Paul. Just because you've worked in museums, and mm. so so we're up there at the behind-the-scenes exhibit, and there are, and, I, and the one thing that made me think of it: there's a woman up there, and I think she was probably a volunteer, and she's working in the herb uh, herbatorium, the herba herbarium, herbarium, <laughs> and it's where they catalog all the plants and grasses yeah. and things. And she's showing how she presses flowers mm. and grasses and how that process goes. And then she says, and then you do this and you do this and you do this. And I just love doing this and impress them. And then I put them in a stack here and then I put them in a stack back there. And then they come back and they un- and then they're stacked there and they're cataloged here. And all of those are done. And there are piles and piles and piles of these 
compressed plants that are just there. Yeah. She said, and then the researchers can come and look at them. And I just think this minutia of things that are there in the in this museum, there are these these tiny flowers, the the minutia of the butterflies. There are millions of butterflies up yeah. there. Um, and they're just cataloged and put away. And, and then there are books, uh, you know, of, of just... Mm. I, and so, I mean, who who comes and looks at them and and why are they... I sometimes wonder why are they there. Yeah. Is that a... I don't know if there's a question there or... I think it's a brilliant question. And yeah. I think what, what the University of Utah has done is it's built a reputation for itself as an, an amazing research facility where they have a wealth of information at their disposal. And I think it is an international uh, attraction for people that are, you know, your botanists and your scientists, and they're coming here and to find out about what we have in our collections. I mean, this is not the museum when we grew up over on President yeah. Circle, yeah. where, um, I mean, as a child, I was mesmerized by it. Yeah, by, me by, too. By, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hats off to them for building that, for yeah. us to learn and be there. But this is a marvel of of the, the you know, 21st mm-hmm. century. That This is a phenomenal building. So I guess so people come... From around the world, yeah, absolutely. To this museum, they say, "Oh, I know who has a collection of grasses from the from the from the plains of yeah. Utah or yep. or wherever these things." It just it's just mind-boggling. Yeah, it and I mean, so researchers come and they'll come to the museum. Yeah, and they'll say, well, "I want to study these these particular grass." Or, or we went into this room uh, uh, where there were. Um, uh, squirrels and 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 uh, rats and mice and and they're all you know they've all been taxidermied and, yeah and they're all laid out in all these different you know and uh, somebody uh, a young woman said this is the oldest specimen we have in our collection and it's a um i think it was a, a rat or a, a yeah, i think it was a rat wow. mm-hmm. uh, a wild rat from 1875 yeah and the and the guy who ta- taxidermied it did it wrong uh, it's it's yet you know, it's still it, here with us. Yeah, it, but here it is, and it, with his notes. But he did it wrong. He did oh. it on. He he took the back, and it should have done it from the stomach, and you know. Yeah. And they see how he did it wrong, and here's how it should have been done right. But we still have the the specimen and yeah. his notes, and and here's his name, and you know. It just it's just fascinating. We well, still have it in the collection. That in itself is a learning example yeah. of of you know of. The evolution of our science. Yeah, science of, is... Of how we've changed the way we dissect and, right. and preserve. Science is changing all the time. And, and I, I think, too, that what... Me- what a muse- one of the main things that a museum like uh, the Natural History Museum of Utah is interested in is studying change over time. And in order to do that, you have to, to collect a, a lot of specimens. And, you know, if you're looking at plants, for example, you're, you're collecting a lot of the same plant. And um, you're not just collecting it for a generation, but over the course of many generations. And you hope that someday uh, that scientists can look back on that information and be able to tell something. I mean, we, never, we don't know ne- uh, exactly what's going to be important. Um, so we try to get as much of it as, as, as we can. I think right now a big trend in uh, museums is actually uh, collecting uh, samples for purposes of uh, DNA. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there, you, when you were talking before about the herbarium plants, and mm-hmm. you know, part of uh, the on the sheet where the plants are pressed and glued to, there's a little envelope um, where there's uh, um, uh, some samples that are made available to send all over the world, and actually um, for people to analyze and look at the genetics. 
Um, so it's a whole new level of, yeah. of, um, of collections. Yeah. It's just fascinating. It's, a, it's a, an astonishing, and it's a repository of knowledge that um, long after we're gone, um, maybe, I, and I don't know, maybe that's another question, uh, how uh, are there, there are probably special steps taken here to preserve this stuff. Oh, yeah. We have very, very strict protocol here. You know, and, I mean, our, our number one goal of everyone who works here is to uh, take care of the collections. And these, uh, we're a state repository. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the collections that are housed here belong to the people of Utah. And um, we're, we're hired to, to protect those collections, to maintain the collections, and to, to study those. And, and then communicate the information to the general public. What about uh, preserving the collections? I mean, obviously, there are things like temperature control and all of that. Right. But, but protecting them in, in terms of, uh, you know, maybe when we're not around. Yeah. Is, that, uh, or is there, I don't know. Well, to kind of into that, that, it's kind of a creepy uh, that point. No, but, I mean, we do a lot of events here. I mean, the museum is available for, for uh, private events. They can rent out the entire museum you ca- at, and at do you, night. And do you cater those um, all? I can cater some of them, but I'm limited to what I can do in the kitchen. And part mm-hmm. of that limitation is what we're trying to preserve um, – any scents or any smells or any uh, grease or anything getting into the collection. So actually I have a very limited amount of what I can do. However, that being said, caterers can bring in everything from filet mignon to, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. they want to do. It's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And they can rent out the entire thing. One of the unique things that I learned when I, I, before I actually started here, I catered a few events here um, for another private company. And, you know, we can't bring flowers in here, live flowers, or uh, because they could have an insect in them. Or you have to, you know, be mm-hmm. really careful or pollen, with even pollen, pollen or something. Yeah, anything that could just like possibly get into. Um, well, Paul Michael could maybe help a little bit even better. Even get, the, the get into the get into the air conditioning yeah. or the absolutely. And you know, actually, I think the thing that we're really concerned about, maybe not necessarily the small insects that are on in the, the the pollen, will do any damage to the collections. But it's it's the the uh, bugs that eat those insects that really cause a problem. Uh, Dermestid beetles, for example, are notorious mm-hmm. um, for damaging museum collections, and if they got into the wrong part of the museum, um, they could completely destroy uh, an anthropology collection, you know, mm-hmm. which is, um, you know, uh, thousands of, of years old. Mm-hmm. So, uh, One thing that used to be quite a feature of natural history museums that I didn't see here, and, and uh, I don't think you'd, you see it, I, I don't see any uh, human remains here. Right. Um, hmm. I think there probably used to be human remains in the Natural History Museum, and maybe yeah. there are human remains here, but you don't display them. Are there human remains here? And yeah, we um, we do have some uh, human remains here, and um, uh, and uh, and some of the things to Nagpra, you know, where a lot of museums like this one are repatriating uh, the the bones, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to be done about finding out exactly like where. The human remains should go, but we would. I don't think we would ever uh, display human remains here. It's just out of respect for the you know, the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a really touchy uh, yeah, subject with with museums and with American Indian populations. When I was a little uh, kid, I remember I grew up in Ogden, and I think with the Scouts or something, we came down to the um, Daughters of the Utah Pioneer or the the History Museum that's right there on Capitol Hill. Isn't that the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers. Exactly, yeah. And I haven't been in there probably since that time. And they had uh, like a, a Native American mummy in there. Yeah. Uh, in that museum. I, and I don't even remember why they had it in there. They yeah. just did. And uh, 
was kind of I just rem- I still remember it vividly, and I and I think probably in the old President's Circle Museum they probably had some uh, at some time in the pa- long past. Probably well, clearly the evolution from the apes and things like that. They've got mm-hmm. that 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 timeline documented on the walls down there, but mm-hmm. yeah, nothing that would be. But uh, but now but now remains they don't they don't it, it's just not done anymore. Well, so, some museums do some some do don't. They still some? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's a lot of uh, museums that specialize in Egyptology, for example. Well, Egyptology, I think, yeah. uh, but but certainly not Native American. Uh, that's become very. Kind of. Yeah, and I would say that there's some museums that, you know, again, that go on both sides of that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, here, I, 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 our uh, anthropology team is very respectful with the human remains they have. And um, I, I also think that we do a really good job of uh, reaching out to the American Indian groups. And we have an American Indian advisory committee that, um, that kind of helps us um, uh uh, make sure that we're uh, caring for the collections in the right way and that we're representing their stories in, in the right mm-hmm. way, too. So mm-hmm. I, I think this museum, is a, a, I'm really proud um, of the, the way that they work with local American Indian communities. And there's some beautiful stuff up there in the behind-the-scenes um, collection of uh, just just handiwork, art, 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 you know, bead, beaded things. And some of it's not that old, really. Some mm-hmm. of it's just, just examples of... Of uh, handicrafts and work that's done, uh, and some of it's some of it is old, and some of it's uh, more, it looks to be more recent. But, yeah. But but is kept as uh, examples of, of uh, uh, handicraft that that's done by various uh, indigenous people in the area. There's a, a big part of our anthropology collection that um, actually comes from Glen Canyon, and it was a salvage project. Our, our very first director is named Jess Jennings, and um, he's a very famous anthropologist, probably the most famous anthropologist to come out of Utah. And um, it, he was hired to go into Glen Canyon and pull out uh, as many artifacts as he could before the dam went in there wow. and, and, uh, and, and flooded and, and mm. created Lake Powell. Mm. Um, so the, the collections came to the Natural History Museum of Utah, um, and they are beautiful. I, we have pots and baskets, sandals, bone tools, uh, stone beads. I mean, really, it's just a, an amazing collection. And it was, a, and it was just a tiny amount of what was down there i think yeah probably before before it was all flooded and um and if that dam ever goes away that's a lot of that stuff uh, you know it'll be will have been ruined by the water but some of that stuff will still be there yeah it'll be interesting yeah Yeah, if we ever see someday maybe (laughs) i don't know um it's the uh, uh utah museum of natural history yeah the Natural History the Natural Museum, Museum of Utah, the Natural Rio History Tinto Museum Center. Of Utah, the Natural History Museum of Utah at the Rio Tinto Center. At the University of Utah. At the University of Utah. Utah. University of Utah. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Uh, uh, you really need to come uh, if you have not been here um, and see. Now, behind the scenes, you've missed it. The wet collection is pretty good, too. Um, that The wet collection is is uh, jars of snakes and alligators <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. I'll post a picture. I took a great picture <laughs> of an alligator in a jar. Wow. Uh, and I'll post a picture when we uh, run this episode. Um, be ready for next year. Uh, and if and now and there's still a night at the. You still do night at the museum. Yeah, we do. We have uh, really a, a, um, uh, a very eclectic group of programming. So we have uh, overnights that we do. 
Um, we have special events. Um, we have lots of hands-on activities, um, especially hands-on activities that kind of surround our, our traveling exhibits. Right now in our uh, uh, canyon, we have kids that are roping calves and making yeah. core courses and, uh, and examining uh, uh, horse bones. So yeah, we, we are, we're always up to something fun, and people can jump online. Uh, they can go to um, nhmu.utah.edu, um, and they can uh, just uh, look at our calendar and see what's uh, what's uh, what we're up to. What and and become a member. That's also a good thing to do. Become yeah. a member of the the Natural History Museum. Yeah, it helps support the museum, and, and we have uh, offer all kinds of member benefits. You get discounts and um, get invited to exclusive events. So, and not to mention, if you're a member, you know you're likely to bring your family up, and this is a great place to to visit uh, um, throughout the year. You know, you always see something new. You're always learning something, and I think it's really great for uh, kids to get exposed to science and you know have fun. Around around science and, and start feeling confident and, and build a capacity to, to thinking critically. Yeah. And if you have a membership card, do you get a discount at the cafe? You do. You get 10% off. Okay. Good. Well, see, I've got a membership card, so now I'll have to come up here and have remember and have lunch occasionally. They have some of those uh, uh, cheese enchiladas. Yeah. <laughs> the thing I wanted to point out is that actually we have extended hours on Wednesday nights, which is really nice. And uh, the gift shop is phenomenal has amazing representation of uh, American Indian artwork. It's got uh, just eclectic, uh, really fun stuff, great stuff for the holidays that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful opportunity to stop in, grab a bite to eat at the cafe, have a cup of coffee, shop around. Cool. And again, you don't even have to do the museum. And if you're a member, the great thing about that is you can just walk through the one one portion of the exhibit for half an hour, an hour. Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. it's too much to take in four or five hours of a museum, but be, worth mean, it no matter what. It, it really would take you... Four, three or four hours to go through yeah. the entire museum, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'd say the average guest yeah. probably spends about two hours here, yeah. but I, I love to read stuff. So, I, yeah. you know, I, it would probably take me about three or four. Yeah, so Lots of kids, hands-on activities, get your hands wet and, yeah. and, and learn and interactive, and, and that's also so, awesome. So become a member. So, again, the, webs- the website where you can find all of that is? nhmu.utah.edu. All right. Thanks a lot, you guys. Thanks for having us. This is really fun. Uh, it's the... Wait, I'll read it off your shirt. <laughs> it's the Natural History Museum of Utah at Rio Tinto Center, the University of Utah. There you go. Uh, thanks a lot to Paul Michael Maxfield and uh, Paul Mulder. And uh, earlier we talked to uh, the curator of paleontology, Randall Ermus. You've been listening to the Let's Go Eat Show. I'm Bill Allred. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, if you're pouring drinks, always make mine a double. Ha, 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 ha.